Quick reminder again that next weekend is a big weekend. Saturday morning, we'll go pack boxes of blessing in San Antonio, and then Sunday we'll have worship, and then Sunday evening we will throw a party together. It should be a lot of fun. I really hope you all can come. It's a great time to, to bring friends, neighbors, relatives. Uh, really, the whole reason we're getting together is just to celebrate, and it should be a lot of fun. That's at the Downtown Social uh, on Sunday evening. If you want to know more about Boxes of Blessing as well, contact me, and I can direct you to the right place. Okay, like we've said multiple times, we've made a shift kind of in the church calendar today into the season of Advent. So we're making a shift as well on our, in our sermon texts. We're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, and we'll actually be looking at Luke's Gospel from now until Easter. We've, we've tried to make it a practice of ours actually to be in one of the gospel accounts uh, every year between Christmas and Easter. And because it's Luke, we actually get a lot of the pre-birth account in Luke too, a lot of the Adventish kind of things going on in Luke as well. So we're going to spend the next uh, three weeks in just Luke chapter 1. Before I read, uh, let me just say what we're going to be dealing with is actually a story about the announcement of a messenger, the message about the coming of a messenger. And uh, you know what a messenger is if you've ever checked your mail, right? Because the mailman brings you your messages. It could be a bad message, like a bill, or it could be, you know, a letter from your son who lives in a different state. That's a good message. Or it could be the catalog full of stuff that you really don't need, which is a dangerous message. You know what a messenger is if you've ever been through middle school, right? Tell her I said this, and then, oh, no, no, tell her I no, just take this note, Right? Or if you've ever seen a mob movie, you know what a messenger is. Mobsters, big-time mobsters, never actually talk to anybody face-to-face. They always send people. Tell him, you know, that some people are thinking that this is a bad idea, right? So we know about messengers. Uh, Luke actually spends 20 verses talking not even just about the birth, but the announcement of the birth of one of the greatest messengers in the Bible, John the Baptist. And it really raises this question for us. What is the message that we need to hear this Advent? What's the message that we need to hear this Advent? That's what we're going to dive into today. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to the Gospel of Luke. I'll start in verse, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while she was serving as priest, he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense." And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, 
even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him into the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We pray that you would speak to us. Lord, I am weak and frail and deeply faulted. But Lord, your word is strong and secure and it is true. So Lord, we ask that that would be what we would hear this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me give you just a little bit of background about what's going on here in this story. Zechariah is a priest, and the priests are the ones who would take care of and attend to the temple and offer the sacrifices and do things like burn incense in the temple. And at this time, there were probably about 18,000 of these priests in Israel. And so to do those very special things, you actually had to be chosen, and typically what they would do is that they would cast lots for the person to be chosen to go in and do something special like burn incense or offer sacrifice. This is the kind of thing, because there were so many, that might come around maybe once in your lifetime, if at all. So it was a really big deal when you got chosen to be the priest that would go in and burn the incense. And the priest would then go into the temple, and the temple, you know, is set up kind of progressively uh, where there are rooms, smaller rooms, kind of like, you know, Russian nesting dolls. The room in the very center, the Holy of Holies, is the place that only the high priest could enter, and then only once a year. But the next room was called the Holy Place, and it was a place, again, not very many people could go, but one of those priests chosen, like Zechariah in this passage, could go in here and burn incense. Now, we don't burn a lot of incense in our church, although some churches still do. But the reason that they would burn the incense is that it was a symbol, actually, that God had heard them. The smoke would rise up to the Lord, it would smell wonderful, and it it reminded them that God was in relationship with them, that He heard their prayers, and that He acted upon their prayers. And while Zechariah was in burning incense, it probably would have been the time of evening prayer, so a worship service where there would have been a lot of people gathered in the temple or outside the temple, and they all would have been praying. And because it was evening prayer, oftentimes during that evening prayer, the prayers would center around not just personal concerns, but national concerns. And so probably the the kind of tenor of the prayers, the content of the prayers that were being offered were the kind of things like we see in Luke chapter 2 that Simeon prays for the consolation of Israel. They're praying for the king to come. They're praying for the Messiah to show up. They're praying for God to go to work. Or maybe they're praying what Luke will actually be his, will be Luke's theme really throughout the book, which is that God would save. Maybe even Elizabeth's there, patiently praying that God would give her a child. And as these prayers are going up, really the main concept, the main content of the prayers is that God would act. So here's Zechariah, he's offering the incense, here's all the people gathered around outside and they are praying that God would act, and then what happens? God acts. Zechariah sees an angel who appears to him and says, Zechariah, something 
pretty amazing is about to happen. Your prayer for a child has been answered, but more than that, the prayers of all those gathered here that God would actually come in and do something about the brokenness of the world has been answered. And you're going to have a son. His name is John, and he is going to be a very special person because he is going to bring the message of salvation to the world. John is a prophet. John is, most scholars would say, the last of the Old Testament prophets and the one who's kind of the transition piece between this time of preparation and then fulfillment that we see in the New Testament. And what we actually read about here is a messenger, an angel, announcing the arrival of another messenger who will announce the arrival of the message himself, Jesus, the King, the Messiah, the one who will make everything right. We asked that question at the beginning, what do we need to hear this Advent? What's the message that we need to hear? Well, here's the thing. It's the same message that God's people needed to hear then. Because when we celebrate Advent, we're actually celebrating two Advents. We get to look back on Jesus' appearing and the anticipation that was there as God's people waited for Him for many, many years. But we're also looking forward to His second Advent to his second appearing, because we live between the times where Jesus has come but has promised to return. So the message actually that God's people needed to hear from John is the same message that we need to hear today. And here's what it is. The content really of John's message that we get here both in the proclamation of his birth and throughout even his ministry involves three major things in this passage. It is a message of joy, a message of revival, and a message of hope. So we'll dig into those together. So first of all, when the angel shows up, the first thing that happens to Zechariah is the same thing that would happen to you and I. We get really afraid. In fact, this always happens when angels show up in the Bible. All of our pictures of angels are of little chubby babies, right, with bows and arrows. That's probably not what this angel looked like because that really wouldn't scare anybody. But when you're in church offering incense here and an angel shows up in the room with you, it's going to probably freak you out. But the first words out of the angel's mouth are, don't be afraid. They're words of comfort. They're the words actually that we even heard uh, in our assurance of pardon this morning. The words of Isaiah in chapter 40 of Isaiah that he says, when the Messiah comes, there's going to be comfort. Comfort, my people. Comfort and joy. And Zechariah is, give, is told here that there's going to be joy not only for he and Elizabeth, of course, the joy of having a child, they are, remember, old, and they have no children, and they have been waiting for a long time for this. So there's deep joy for them, but there's also deep joy in the announcement of what John is going to do. You know, as we approach Christmas, you know, maybe some of you are already even on top of your Christmas shopping. If you look through the years, there's always kind of the the must-have toy, the must-have gift, you know, every Christmas. There was the Cabbage Patch doll. Remember the Cabbage Patch doll? Uh, And then there was, you know, the Beanie Baby kind of craze. And there was the Tickle Me Elmo, which I never quite got. Uh, Then we kind of shifted, you know, into this electronic time, and there were iPods and Kindles and, you know, whatever the next gaming console was, whichever year you were there. And then in 2015, there was that frozen sing-along with Elsa doll, which may show up again this year. 
Okay, that is what sequels are all about, by the way. But you know, the fun about those gifts is actually seeing the joy when a child unwraps it. And it's that thing that they've wanted for months or days or maybe years, right? And you see their eyes just light up and they're so excited and you feel the joy that they have when they open up that gift. Well, what the angel here is announcing to Zechariah and to Elizabeth is an amazing gift. It's a child, a child that they've been waiting for. But more than that, it's actually laying the foundation for the joy that will be announced in the Messiah. Another angel, maybe it's the same angel even, appears to shepherds when Jesus is born and he says some very similar things. Don't be afraid, for I'm bringing you good tidings of great joy, not just for you, but for the world. I'm bringing you tidings of joy for the world. So the announcement of John's birth and the message of John's proclamation throughout his ministry is one of joy. The king is coming. Jesus is coming, and that brings joy. But it's also a message that needs to bring change, revival, change in God's people. Look at verse 16 again that we read. Is that John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He's going to turn the people of Israel to the Lord their God. There's something that's missing there, isn't there? There's a background there, a problem, because we just got an answer The problem is a lot of the people of Israel had actually turned away from God. And the message that John will bring is one actually of turning back to God so that they make him the center of all that they do and say and live and think. It's the way that it's always supposed to have been for God's people, that the Lord their God is supposed to be at the center of their lives and of ours. The message is a call to righteousness to faithfulness, to engagement with God, to a devoted life, to a life that is lived out in response to God's goodness. When we're introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth earlier, we're told that they are righteous, that they walk blamelessly before the Lord. Now, we need to be really careful with the language we're using so that we know what kind of righteousness we're talking about. The Bible says really clearly that there is an unrighteousness inside of us, in our hearts, that puts us in a position of antagonism before God, that we, as we stand before God the judge, are unrighteous in our actions, and that can only be changed by Jesus. This is the kind of language of righteousness that's used by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans when he says that there's a righteousness that comes from God that is given to us that changes our internal disposition and our position before the Lord. That is something that only Jesus can do. However, there is also a righteousness that is lived out in God's people in the way that we act and think and treat one another. We've said before uh, that you know, there is a connection between who we are and what we do. And what we do does not make us who we are, right? Our activity does not build our identity or shape our identity. But our activity doesn't need to be wiped away either because our identity actually leads to our activity. We do what we do because of who we are, because Jesus has made us right with him, 
Because he has given us his life, because he has changed our hearts, that then pours out into our lives. And so our lives actually look different. The lives of Christians should look different than the lives of non-Christians. And the message that John is called actually to proclaim to God's people is turn, change, come back to the Lord. You know, that word revival maybe is familiar with some of you, maybe even has a bad connotation for some of you. You may get this image of, uh, of, of big tents in swampy places and maybe even of hucksters selling things. But biblically speaking, the word revival is a really good word. The psalmists are oftentimes calling on God to revive our hearts, to enliven us. Uh, Ezekiel's famous vision is of dry bones that come to life because the Holy Spirit is actually at work. And the story of the Bible is actually that God is at work. That's the story that continues now too. And throughout Christendom, throughout the history of the world, that has been the story, is that God's Spirit has moved in people to not only change hearts that were hard, who never knew Jesus, but also to turn those who had started to walk away back to the Lord. There's been all kinds of, you know, booms kind of in this throughout history. The first and second great awakenings are probably some of the more famous in our history. But really, all throughout the history of America and Europe and the Western world and and everywhere across the world has been the story of God's Spirit actually doing things that are just amazing to watch. The, The southern half of the world is booming with spiritual awakening. Asia is booming with spiritual awakening. And it oftentimes comes with kind of some just regular stuff. There's a story in 1850 of this man who just decided to have a prayer meeting at lunch in New York City and just started to invite people. And over the course of the months that he would do this weekly, thousands and thousands of businessmen would meet for lunch and pray. And by most accounts, that meeting is responsible for thousands, if not tens of thousands, of both conversions and of spiritual renewal in Christians. Similar things are happening right now in Japan. I read something the other day about uh, a revival in Japan from a really unlikely source, and that's the music of Bach. So right about this time, you know, orchestras all over the world are putting on uh, St. Matthew's uh, Passion, or the, excuse me, what's the one in Advent? There's a Bach concerto that's put on around this time all over the world, and people come to hear beautiful music but they also hear the wonderful gospel-centered lyrics. And so in Japan right now, every time, they're, and their tickets are like $600 a piece, okay? So people are paying crazy amounts of money to come and listen to beautiful music, and they're hearing these amazing lyrics, and they're hearing the beautiful music together, and something is happening in their hearts. And one Christian conductor said after every performance, people come up to him, and they start asking him things that are totally taboo in Japanese society like about death and hope. And so tell me a little more as a Christian, what is this idea of hope that you have? And he said, you know, Bach is probably responsible for 10,000 conversions in Japan. Isn't that amazing? The other really cool thing about revival is that it's holistic, is it happens both vertically and horizontally. 
Now, what do I mean by that? Vertically meaning actually God goes to work in our hearts, in our relationship with him. That's the idea of turning the people of God to their Lord. But look at what else Luke says that John will pronounce is that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, but also turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. That's horizontal, isn't it? That's actually relational. So he will turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, that's vertical, and the hearts of the fathers to their children, that's horizontal. We get a holistic revival when we talk about it in the Bible. Is that God comes to not only, the gospel comes to not only make our hearts right with God and change our lives, so we should see change in our own lives and our own thinking and our devotion toward the Lord, but it also should change the way that we act. It should change our relationships. It should change our families. It should change our communities. Here's the funny thing, though, about revival. Is it's a lot like, uh, like going to sleep. You can prepare for sleep, but you can't make yourself go to sleep. Revival is similar. And you can crawl in bed, and you can cuddle up on your pillow, and I'll lay on my side, and I'll grab my body pillow Maybe too much information for some of y'all. But I can't make myself go to sleep. Sleep is a gift that has to be given. But I can receive that gift in the right posture because I'm probably not going to receive that gift when I'm on a run or when I'm playing basketball. Revival is very similar in that way. We're asking the Holy Spirit to come and do something that we can't do on our own. But you know, we can receive it in the right posture. And we, we, when we go about doing the things that God has given us to do, opening His Word, joining together in worship, coming with each other before the sacraments, praying, engaging in the difficult life of self-denial and of laying our lives down for others, in the hard work of loving each other, in preaching the gospel to ourselves and our own hearts daily, that's where the Spirit goes to work. That's the message of revival. It's one we need in the church today. All right, let's turn to this last one. Joy, revival, and then also hope. The message that John will proclaim is a message of hope. And hope is a word that we oftentimes get wrong in our society. We've kind of taken that word hope and we've shrunk it down to just mean a few things, right? I hope I get an A on that test. I hope, you know, it doesn't rain tomorrow. It just means I wish, but hope in the Bible never means I wish. Hope in the Bible actually is always based on something that has been promised to happen. And so the hope is the fulfillment, the knowledge that what has been promised will actually happen. That's what hope is. It's not sentimental, it's substantial. You know, you've seen a coming, coming soon sign, like when you drive down a road and there used to be an empty field, and out there's a sign in that field that says, something is coming. Soon this will no longer be in just an empty field. There will be something really wonderful here. And then you start to see the construction, and you finally see the fulfillment of that. Or you get on the road and try and drive down the loop right now, where it's kind of tough because there's a lot of traffic, but there is that idea that something good is coming soon, that someday it's going to be better. That someday you're not actually going to be in, on a one-lane street behind 50 other cars. That there will be something that changes. 
That's what hope is in the Bible. It's real and it's substantial, and it actually answers our deepest questions. This Thanksgiving, uh, we flew to Pennsylvania to have Thanksgiving with Joy's sister, Bethany, and her husband, Adam, and their children. They live outside of Philadelphia and had a wonderful time seeing family and enjoyed our time together there. But the flavor of Thanksgiving this year was a little different. We knew going into Thanksgiving that some of their close friends, that he was actually dying, that one of Adam's friends named Chris had brain cancer and was in his last days. Well, that last day actually happened on Thanksgiving morning. And my brother-in-law, Adam, spent Thanksgiving morning with his friend as he breathed his last breath. Later that evening, as we gathered together for Thanksgiving dinner together, another one of the families who was there was Adam's sister-in-law and her children. She had lost her husband, Adam's brother, less than 10 years ago, also to cancer. It was a different flavor to Thanksgiving. And even though both of these men were Christians, even though they were united to Christ, even though all of those who were gathered around were able to proclaim that beautiful truth, there was this question just kind of lingering in the air of, what are we supposed to do with this? What do we do with this kind of sadness? What do we do with death? You know, the answer that the young church, and that the church for the last 2,000 years has given to that is this one word in Greek called Maranatha. It means, come quickly, Lord. It's a word that is dripping with hope. The Apostle Paul closes out his first letter to the church in Corinth with those words, come quickly. And John closes out Revelation with the same thing. We hear the words actually of Jesus say, I'm coming soon. And John's response, the only appropriate response, is come quickly. That's what we proclaim this Advent. That's the message that we need to hear, is that Jesus is coming. Is that He is coming and that message actually brings deep and real joy It's a message that should bring challenge to us for revival, that we might turn our hearts to the Lord, and it's a message that brings real and lasting hope. He is coming. Come quickly. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, what else can we say? Lord, this is a a time where we get ready to be festive It's a time where we get ready to rest. It's a time where we get ready to see family. But Lord, so often it's also a time of grief. It's a time to remember the family who's not there. It's a time where we still, we still see the deep brokenness of the world. We open up the news and we see that there are people shot and killed every morning. We look on Facebook and we find that our friends are struggling in their marriages or losing relatives. And Lord, the only answer to this is Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord. With this Advent, let that be what sits on our heart. Let us marinate in that today. 
and the rest of this month. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.